with you this morning. Um, and uh, this morning we took the trek from Pukekohe, uh, where I'm pastoring uh, Franklin Baptist Church. Um, just going to point myself in that direction and try and get everybody in. It's cool. Um, so, um, yeah, good to be with you this morning. We, Lynn and I just love going to other churches and seeing what God's doing around the, 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 the country. Uh, and uh, wherever we go um, on holiday, whether it's in New Zealand or other parts of the world, we enjoy just getting together with other believers because, you know, we're part of the family of God, aren't we? And no matter what, uh, what culture you are or ethnic group you are, uh, we're part of this big family that God has, is raising up uh, to be the light and the salt in the world. And um, it's great to be with you this morning. It's interesting that Steve and Mo are over in Scotland at the moment. Um, we, we know Steve uh, from Whangarei Central Baptist Church because that was our sending church when we left there uh, about nearly 30 years ago now um, to go into ministry. And uh, we've journeyed uh, to Bible College and then through to Dargaville where I pastored the church up in Dargaville for 11 years and then down to Taranaki. We were there for five years uh, and then back up to Pukekohe where we've now been there for nine years. It's been a pleasure. Uh, I said I'd never go to Auckland. I never wanted to pastor a church in Auckland. Uh, God has a wonderful sense of humor, doesn't he? And uh, although we're not, we don't feel like we're quite in Auckland, but um, we, you know, when we became super city, we entered into that uh, realm of joining the ranks of being a city church. Um, I love it out there at Franklin. Um, it's a wonderful church. But um, our son, uh, our youngest son and daughter-in-law are in Scotland at the moment. Um, they've just finished doing one year um, service with the African Mercy uh, ship um, over in Guinea, um, where they've been working, our daughter-in-law is a, a nurse, specialist nurse, and our son um, was handling all the IT um, equipment on board the ship. So uh, they were there for ten, uh, 10 months, they've been with the, the, they've been with the uh, boat for around about 12 months. Uh, they're on their way home too, so we're looking forward to them coming back. Uh, they live here in Auckland. Uh, so we're looking forward to them coming back. We've got um, our oldest daughter, uh, Emily, and her husband live in Tuakau, which is just down the road from us. So we enjoy them being close by with our little granddaughter, Hazel. Uh, uh, Lynn is, a, um, Lynn is a, a, a wonderful grandma who looks after her granddaughter uh, three days of the week. So um, we enjoy having her around our home. Four generations live in our house most of the time. So um, we, we, um, we enjoy that. Uh, and also, um, our other son uh, and daughter-in-law were living in Auckland. My, uh, she's a nurse as well. She was at Middlemore. My son was working out at Glenbrook at the uh, steel mill uh, and then decided um, to go farming, of all things, uh, to leave a, a good job at the steel mill and to go farming. And he's thoroughly enjoying it. This is his second season of carving, and I can't understand why and if he wants to do that. But anyway. But it's a lifestyle, isn't it? It's a lifestyle. And uh, one of the things that Jesus calls us to is a different lifestyle. And lifestyle's a big thing today. I don't know if you've noticed this, but it's a really big thing. you only got to go to the shops and see the magazines and see what's on TV and the ads and the, the programs that they have on TV uh, that, that woo us into this kind of false sense of this is how we should live and this is how we should be. Our culture is obsessed with lifestyle. You know, what clothes are you wearing this morning? You know, what, 
you know, what label have you got on? What, what, what food should we eat? What's the next diet or what's the ne next health program? What style of home are you living in? What sort of garden have you got? Does everybody look at it and admire it? Is that the kind of lifestyle? You know, it's the kind of lifestyle we're being drawn into. Um, and then there's all these, this, this idea of, you know, you've got to have the good-looking body, you know. There's no good looking at me uh, for a good-looking body. Um, I have to work really hard, um, you know, <laughs> just to keep trim, but it's, uh, it's not working. <clears throat> but, you know, this, light, this idea of a lifestyle is something that we've got to be careful that we don't buy into it too much because Jesus calls us to a different lifestyle. And this morning we're going to be looking at a passage of scripture that is based around what Jesus was teaching his disciples about this different lifestyle that as Christians, as believers in Jesus, that we should be living. Jesus' teaching in the Sermon on the Mount presents a completely different kind of lifestyle, a different kind of worldview. Not that which the world offers, but something that is offered to us through the kingdom of of God. In fact, Jesus was challenging. Often he challenged many aspects of the lifestyle within his own world, in his own time. And you know, today he calls us uh, to be different. Today, as followers of Jesus, the lifestyle he calls us to is very counterculture. And this countercultural lifestyle that others often are looking to us for. It's interesting, isn't it? People are always watching us. If they know that you're a Christian and they know you're a believer, they're looking at what your lifestyle is like. So we find that Jesus sits down, he, 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 he gathers his disciples together and he sits down with his disciples on a mountain and he tells them that they can now live a different kind of lifestyle and you can live that lifestyle under the blessings of God. The title of my sermon this morning is Living Under the Blessing of God. Now I have to say, this is a two-part sermon, a message. All right, so I'm only doing the first part this morning. So if you like it, you might have to get me back for the second part. Because the first part talks about our relationship with God and the lifestyle that God calls us to in our relationship with Him. The next one talks about how we should connect and the lifestyle we should live in relationship with other people so jesus calls his disciples he sits them down and tells them about how they can live under the blessings of god as they live this lifestyle that god's calling us to now it starts with just jesus and his disciples but of course wherever jesus went he drew a crowd and so by the end of chapter seven uh, we find that there's been this crowd and it says at the end of chapter seven they were amazed at his teaching why were they amazed? Because it offered a better alternative to the lifestyle of their world. So, during this um, little mini-series, I've called it the challenging lifestyle because the Christian lifestyle is a challenge for all of us. A challenge for us. And like someone said in the sermon I was listening to just a while ago, Jesus came and he turned our lifestyle upside down and it's a challenge to live the jesus lifestyle you know challenges can be difficult can't they you know one of the greatest challenges i ever faced 
was um, my challenge to climb Mount Taranaki. I was living down in, in New Plymouth, and because Mount Taranaki is a very prominent aspect of the uh, landscape down there, and uh, it was my goal to reach the top of Mount Taranaki. Now, I'm not a climber. Uh, I'm not particularly f well, you know, fit. Um, not like some of the guys in my church who did this often. But I, I wanted to face this challenge. And so I thought, I, it's no good me going up there on my own because I'd just get lost and I'd probably still be wandering around up there on the mountain and may never, ever return home. I didn't think Lim would like that. So I decided I'd have to get a guide. We had a guy in our church, um, who his name was Robin, and he had done the, the, the climb to the top roughly around about 250 times, so he was a seasoned climber of Mount Taranaki. And I said to him, um, Robin, can you take me to the top of Mount Taranaki? He said, I'd love to do that. So I found myself one morning, very, very early, before the sun got up, uh, standing at the car park, uh, with this huge mountain in front of me that we were about to ascend. And we started off, we walked through the bush, and as we broke out of the bush, and we came to the openness, the sun came up, and we saw this most amazing sunrise. We went through uh, bracken and low, sort of um, bushy, scrubby sort of stuff, till we got to a scoria um, uh, base where, you know, you took um, one step forward and then slid back a little bit and another step forward and it was a bit tough going. And into a rocky um, place where we climbed up rocks and, uh, and, and then we got to the crater where there was snow and we had to cut our footholds in the snow to get to the summit. And uh, it, was most, it was a very inspiring climb. I was very, very pleased that we did it. The only thing was it took me four hours to get to the top. Now, Robin used to do the whole climb up and down in two and a half. But he'd been very gracious and he'd been very patient with me. And so we, we, we got to the top and I thought, great, I've achieved this challenge, this challenge that I thought was going to be the greatest challenge of my life. Well, it wasn't. I discovered the greatest challenge was to get down again. So we got to the top and we had some lunch and we enjoyed the view. And then he said, oh, it's time for us to go down. It took us five hours to get down. Because I was coming down, I realized my body had been, you know, um, being used too much going up. And so I, I found going up quite easy. But coming down, man, I, you know, the, uh, the, the difficulty of, of going downhill hurts your knees. Gets your knees and it gets your hips. And I started to feel pain. I started to have cramps. Uh, at one stage, I felt like the only way I was going to get down was on my hands and knees. Uh, at one stage, we were going down a very, very steep part, and I actually turned around and walked down backwards because it was too painful to go forwards. But, you know, I got to the bottom, and we got back to the car park where we were, and um, it was an amazing uh, thing to do an achievement like that. I made it home. By this stage, my legs felt like jelly, um, but I got up to, for work the next morning, and I went to work, and I gloated to all the staff, that I'd been to the top and back. Now, just to put, put it in a little bit of perspective, um, it took me nine hours to go up and down, right? Nine hours. Now, I had a person on my staff who was very, very fit. He enjoyed climbing the mountain too. He would do it three times in nine hours. Up and down three times in nine hours. So this was my physical challenge, and I achieved it. But what God calls us to 
throughout the Sermon on the Mount is an even bigger challenge. It's a spiritual challenge and one that requires us to be not fit in our body but fit in our spirit to look out for our heart attitude. It's about our heart attitude and see how we measure up to our example that we find in Jesus, this lifestyle that Jesus calls us to. And the Sermon on the Mount is infinitely more difficult, far harder to complete than me climbing the mountain. And yet we are told that it is filled with joy and it is filled with satisfaction. The blessings far outweigh the difficulty. And Jesus says to the people, he says, the one who takes up the challenge is wise and is blessed. So you're feeling blessed this morning? Take up the challenge. We're going to have a look how we can live under this blessing that God has for us. No matter how far you are on the journey, no matter how long you've been in your Christian journey, or how short it continues to be a challenge for us, but we don't have to do it alone. This is the good news. We don't have to do it alone. God has given us his Holy Spirit, who is my Robin, the Robin that guided me up the mountain. The Holy Spirit is our guide, who walks with us, who encourages us on this journey that God has called us to. And if we strive in this lifestyle, we are told we will be blessed. Now, we're going to have a look um, at those chapters of Scripture. Let's read uh, Ch Matthew chapter 5. We're in Ma Matthew chapter 5. I'm going to skip the first couple of verses to begin with. We'll come back uh, to that a little bit different, uh, a little bit later. So we start in verse 3. God blesses those who are poor and realize their need for him, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. See, there's, a, there's something there for us. God blesses those who are poor and who realize their need for him. That's, that's us. For the reward and the blessing of that is the kingdom of heaven is yours. Then it goes on to say, God blesses those who mourn, for they will be comforted. And then God blesses those who are humble, for they will inherit the whole earth. And God blesses those who hunger and thirst for justice and righteousness, for they will be satisfied. Now the importance of what Jesus has to say to us in uh, to the first century people of God and also to us is found in two aspects of this reading. Verse 1, the verses that we missed out, says that one day as he saw the crowds gathering, Jesus went up on the mountainside and he sat down and he gathered his disciples around him and he began to teach them. Firstly, we find Jesus sits them down. And Jesus sat down with them. You know, when a rabbi or a teacher wanted to say something that was profound, something that was significant, something that you needed to listen to, to take it on board, he sat them down. Not because he was tired, not because it was going to be a long sermon, not because they might fall asleep, but because he wanted to get close to them. He wanted to become intimate with them. He was like a teacher sitting on the other side of a table 
and almost wanted them to consider that he was speaking only to the individual. He wanted to get close. He wanted to get personal. This was important stuff that Jesus is teaching us today. Secondly, it says he opened his mouth to teach them. Now in the Greek, it signifies a real depth of meaning regarding what he was about to share. He wanted to open up his heart so that out of the overflow of his heart would come words of wisdom as to how they could truly be blessed as his people. In other words, he was saying, I want to share really deep things with you. So please listen to what I have to say. He wanted to teach them things that mattered most in their lives. And that's why this Sermon on the Mount is so great, so profound. You know, we, we know Billy Graham, we've heard of Billy Graham. Billy Graham described this passage of Scripture as the eight beautiful attitudes that we all need to take note of because what matters in life is not what you do, but rather who you are. So are you ready to be blessed? We all looking for the blessing of God in our lives? You know, the word blessed appears nine times in just 11 verses in the Sermon on the Mount, and it conveys the idea of happiness, yet it means far more than a happy feeling. The word used in the Greek means to be blessed by God or to find God's favor. Or in other words, how do we live under the blessings of God? And in these first few verses, Jesus is answering this question, what sort of people should we be? What sort of lifestyle should we be living? Now, as I said, there's eight points to this message, but I can only look at four of them this morning that deal with our relationship with God. And so the first thing I want to say this morning is, God blesses those who are poor and who realize they have a need for him. You know, at first glance, it might appear that we all have to go and sell everything or give everything away to become poor. God blesses those who are poor. We might have to, you know, give all of our money or give all of our possessions away so that we can become poor, so that we might be blessed by God. Well, you may be pleased to know that's not what Jesus is saying here. It's, ex it's exactly what Jesus was saying to the rich young ruler. But even then, it wasn't about his riches or what he had. It was about the attitude of his heart. And there are two Greek words for poor. One means a lack of wealth or resources, but the other means that we are poor in ourselves. We are poor in our spirits, so much so that we need the help and the care of another to come alongside us and to support us in our journey of faith. To be poor in spirit is to recognize that in relation to God's standards for our lives, we all fall far short. That we're up to our eyes in debt because of our sins, that we can only find blessing by throwing ourselves on the mercy of God. In Luke 18, we find Jesus comparing the, the Pharisee and the tax collector. The Pharisee who's supposedly the righteous one who stands and prays saying, I thank God that I'm not like that person over there, that sinner over there. I don't cheat, I don't steal, I don't sin like he does. The tax collector, the sinner, 
the real sinner, the one who knows that he doesn't reach God's standards, what does he do? He stands before God with his head bowed, not daring to lift his eyes as he prayed, God, be merciful to me, for I am a sinner. Jesus says, this man, this tax collector who knows where he stands in his place with God, he is far more blessed because those who humble themselves and who know their sinful state and seek God's mercy, he will be saved. He will be exalted. And Jesus looks his disciples in the eyes and he says, don't be like that proud Pharisee because pride takes you down, but rather be like the humble tax collector who recognizes his sins and asks for forgiveness and mercy and he will be exalted and blessed. For theirs is the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of this world, and all that it offers only leads to the darkness behind closed doors. But the kingdom of heaven flings open its doors to those who realize they are poor in spirit, and they take it to heart, what Jesus says. You know, I always love, one of the things I do at Franklin Baptist Church is I run the Alpha Courses. And I love running the Alpha Course. We run them back to back. Uh, at the moment, I'm, I'm doing two Alpha Courses. We do one in one of the rest homes, and we're doing one at our church. And we can do seven or eight Alpha Courses in a year. But one of the things I love about Alpha when I, is when I hear someone share their story, they've come to this understanding that it's only through God's forgiveness and by his grace that we can truly be blessed. You know, I get all emotional when they talk about how God has transformed their lives and how they've found freedom and wholeness by th through being forgiven of their sins and that there's nothing that we can do to earn God's blessing because it's all about what he's already done for us. The blessing for being poor in spirit is that the kingdom of heaven becomes our reality. The second thing Jesus says is that God blesses those who mourn, who grieve. Now, it's always right for us to mourn or to grieve when we lose someone, when they die. To be sad for those who have lost and are left behind, to grieve those who are lost. And it may appear that Jesus is saying, how happy are the unhappy? But of course, Jesus is not saying that. It's okay to be happy. It's okay to be joyful. We should never feel like the only way to live our lives is with the care of the world on our shoulders. And I know because I can sometimes take the care of the world onto my shoulders too. I can sometimes fall into that place where it's easy to lose your joy. What a sad place the church would be if no one ever laughed or was joyful. We've got a life group in our church. It's full of ladies. It's the most joyful place to go to. Anyone wants to go to their life group because they're always laughing and having fun together. They're filled with the joy of the Lord. It's also true that it's okay to have times of sadness, times of to mourn, Ecclesiastes 3 says there's a time for everything, a time to weep and a time to laugh, a time to mourn and a time to dance. 
See, weeping and mourning are natural God-given emotions. Now, there's this beautiful picture in the Bible when Jesus is coming into Jerusalem. He's turned his face towards Jerusalem, and he comes up over the brow of the hill, and there is the beautiful city of Jerusalem. And we're told at that moment, you know, uh, he, he grieved for the people. He says, if only, if only, he said, I called you, if only you had come to me. And it grieved the heart of Jesus to see his people in Jerusalem. And it says that Jesus wept over his people. Then we find Jesus mourning the death of Lazarus. It was an emotion that Jesus carried. And I often find myself weeping inwardly for the mess that some people seem to get into through with either bad choices like you know drugs and alcohol, bad, bad sexual relationships and anger can so easily ruin a person's life and relationship. And it makes me sad, it makes me grieve, makes me want to weep for them. And that's a godly grief which the Spirit of God gifts to us. We see it often, don't we, when a person comes to faith in Jesus. At that moment, someone realizes the state of their lives, filled with sin, with darkness, with an ugly lifestyle, and their eyes are open to the shame and the guilt of what they're doing or what they have done. And it brings them to repentance. And often in that, in that place of repentance, there are tears that are shed, there's weeping. There is a sense of grieving. And yet there's also a sense of joy in the transformation. And I think we too, even I, sometimes find myself in that place of spiritual bankruptcy where we weep knowing that we're still not perfect in the eyes of God. We're, we, can't, we can never be perfect in the eyes of God. It's only through what Jesus has done for us that we can come to that place. And we're still being transformed. We're being matured to become more like Jesus. That's why it's a lifestyle challenge for us. But it's in recognizing that and being willing to ask God to forgive us, to continually seek Him, that we find the greatest blessing. And it's in that comfort that comes to us. When we know that there's nothing that we can do to turn God's love away from us. His love is ever-ending. It comes to us all the time. That love can be rejected, but God still loves us. That brings us comfort and joy. When we realize that Jesus has paid the price for our salvation, it comforts us. When we realize that we have been proclaimed righteous through Christ, and that is a blessing that brings comfort to us. So God blesses us with comfort as we recognize our own state and we look to him to help us. Thirdly, God blesses those who are humble or in some translations it uses the word meek. I don't know whether you remember that Sunday school song we used to sing, gentle Jesus, meek and mild, look upon this little child. If you're old enough, you probably do uh, remember those words. And whilst we can sometimes see gentle and mild in Jesus, it no way describes him as weak or spineless or feeble. While Jesus was humble and washed his disciples' feet, he was also 
very aggressive when it came to dealing with sin in the life of the Pharisees and when he overturned the trading tables in the temple forecourt. See, Jesus was a man of humility and grace. He was a man of peace, but he was also a man's man. He was also his heavenly father's son. And he knew what was right and he knew what was wrong. Meekness is not weakness, but rather it is gentle, it is considerate, it is unassuming. Meek means to be broken, not in the sense of being destroyed or shattered, but rather in the way a horse is broken when it's tamed, when it's broken in. In other words, it means strength under submission. You know, Moses was described as being, in fact, it's said of him that he was the meekest man in all the world. But Moses was hardly weak or mild. He found his strength in his submission to his God, who called him and who walked with him as he led the people out of Egypt and through the wilderness and into the promised land. The preacher and author, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, defined meekness as essentially a true view of oneself, expressing itself in attitude and conduct with respect to others. This is what he said. The man who is meek is not even sensitive about himself. He's not always watching himself in his own interests. He's not always defensive as we might think. Thinking only of self is a curse, a result of the fall. Spending the whole of life watching ourselves disappears when a person becomes meek because then he is finished with all of that. He no longer worries about himself and what others might say or think. To be truly meek means we no longer protect ourselves because we see that there's nothing worth defending. So we're not on the defensive. All that is gone. The man who is truly meek never pities himself, is never sorry for himself. And what he's saying is that when we are fully in submission to God, when we know the plans that God has for our lives, and we're doing our best to live that out in humility and meekness, then we are truly blessed. Because we're no longer thinking about what we want or what we don't have and getting down because everything seems to be against me. When we grasp what humility and meekness is in our spirits and then in our attitude, we're putting God in the driver's seat of our lives and we know we have all that we need, that everything I have is a gift from God. The blessing for having this attitude, the Bible says, Jesus was saying to his disciples, if you humble yourselves, if you live a life of meekness, then you will inherit the whole earth. Not just some of it, but that we will get all that God has to offer us and all that God desires to give to us. You see, we have a loving Heavenly Father who won't give us a stone when we need bread or won't give us a serpent when we need fish but rather will give us an abundant blessing throughout our lives if only we have the eyes to see and the heart to accept and finally the fourth thing in our relationship with God that Jesus wanted to teach his disciples was this God blesses those who hunger and thirst for righteousness I wonder if we really know what it means to hunger and thirst for righteousness. 
No, I don't. I can't really say that I've ever gone hungry. That I've ever really had to thirst in the physical sense. No food, no water. But I know that there are times when I'm hungry and thirsty for more of what God has for me. Now, William Barclay says that a man might be on a journey and in the midst of it, the hot wind which brings in the sandstorms might begin to blow. There is nothing for him to do but to wrap his head in his clothing and to turn his back on the wind and to wait while the swirling sand fills his nostrils and his throat until he fears that he will suffocate, until he was parched with such a thirst. In the conditions of modern Western life, there is no par parallel to that at all. The closest I think I've ever got to hungering and thirsting was I remember traveling through Death Valley down the road from Las Vegas and we were heading towards Barstow and we arrived in Barstow. We'd been in a motorhome, a beautifully air-conditioned motorhome, and we stopped and we wanted to go into the shops, which was probably from here to the building across the road there. And we got out of the air-conditioned motorhome and we literally ran across the road, which was pretty much molten tar, uh, into the um, building because it was air-conditioned too. In that short space of time, you could feel the moisture draining out of your body. You know, your hands begin, you know, your eyes begin to feel uh, the, the, the liquid being taken out. Your lips began to crack. There was all sorts of things uh, that were going on. It's probably the closest I can ever think of myself being in that similar situation like being in a sandstorm where you just can't get your breath. What Jesus is calling us to do is to find our sustenance in our relationship with him. Do you hunger and do you thirst after living the right way in a world that wants to drag you in a different direction? If we don't have the right attitude, if we don't have the right heart towards God, we can easily be sidetracked in our lives because there's a strong call to the carnal side of our lives. But what satisfies the inner person is living according to God's will and his purpose, which is living a good and godly life, not a partially good life. We're called to be wholeheartedly living in this lifestyle that God's calling us to. Living for God some of the time when we feel like it, or maybe on Sunday when we come to church and then doing our own thing at other times is not living the challenging lifestyle that God's calling every single one of us to. And the problem with many is that we're not desperate enough. We don't want to pay the price. And so we say to God, God, I want to be holy. Make me holy. But not at that cost. Not at that price. Well, not yet anyway. But when we hunger and when we thirst after God, the blessing we are told is that he fills us up and our desire for living right is satisfied. 
that is the blessing. For they shall be satisfied. They shall be filled up. You just think about it for a moment. What's the nicest meal you like? What's the one you enjoy? You know, guys, when you come home from work at night time, you go, honey, what's for dinner? And she goes, it's lamb. You go, oh, that's my favorite. Well, you know, then you get a chance to go to a restaurant, you go, oh, look at the menu. Wow, I'm going to choose my favorite. And we love to, to fill ourselves up on something that we find satisfying. Well, God is saying it's just like that. If you follow after him, he will fill us up, he will satisfy us, and his blessings will be abundant. I want to close with this story this morning. In 2010, in Tusca, in Chile, there were 33 miners who were trapped 2,300 feet underground for a record 69 days. These men discovered what it was to hunger and to thirst, first for food and water, and then to hunger after God. One of the trapped miners, Jose Henriquez, was 54 years old. He was a Christian pastor who also worked in the mine. And knowing that he was a Christian, the others asked him to pray. And so he started a daily prayer meeting in that 50 square meter cabin in the depths of the earth where there seemed to be no light, where there was nothing but darkness, but God was there. During their ordeal, their limited food was rationed out so that often they would have to go for 48 hours and sometimes even 72 hours without eating anything. And when they did, they had two small spoonfuls of tuna, a sip of milk, and a biscuit. These men came face to face with hungering and thirsting, not only after food, but after spiritual help. And as they prayed in that cavern, in the bowels of the earth, God met them where they were. In the midst of their hungering and thirsting after food, they also found that in hungering and thirsting after righteousness, in hungering and thirsting after God, they were truly blessed. You know, a revival broke out amongst the men, and 22 out of the 33 gave their lives to Jesus in the midst of a disaster as a result of their spiritual hunger. God blessed them. On the day they ran out of food, deep underground, they were discovered. Later, food would be fed into their dark place, coming as a blessing from above, and they all realized that God was with them. Fluencio Avalos said of their passion and attitude, as a group, we had to keep faith. We had to keep hope. We had to believe that we would survive. And this really brought us all together. You know, the challenge of the lifestyle that Jesus calls us to is just like that. When we face the difficult things in life, and we know, we do, we know we have to face 
those difficult things in this life? Do we give in to the lifestyle of this world? Or do we face the challenge? Do we take hold of a godly and right attitude? And in so doing, experience the blessings of the God who says, the kingdom of heaven is yours. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you are such a wonderful God. We thank you that we can come to you this morning and God say to you, help us to hunger and thirst after you. Help us to to take on the challenge that you set before us in our relationship with you. Father, help us to look to you in the midst of the trials and the tribulations of this world. Like James says, count it as pure joy when you face these times because in those times we are being molded and we're being shaped and we're being transformed into the people that you want us to be. And Lord, when we live this lifestyle that you call us to, we know that we inspire other people. We know that other people are looking and watching because the world needs a saviour. And when they see you in us, they see something that's different. May each of us, Lord, be inspired to live our lives differently. To be salt and light in the place that you call each one of us to so that we can see others being transformed by the glory of God. Go with us, we pray. Walk with us by your Holy Spirit. And show us, Lord, where you want us to go and what you want us to do. We pray your blessing, Lord, on every person here today. In Jesus' name, amen.